Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Osiris. Folks, it's Alex with a quick pre-message on January 11th, 2023. Within hours of this episode receiving final edits and being turned in, there was breaking news that Jeff Beck had passed away at the age of 78. I probably don't need to tell anyone that in the world of guitar, this is as devastating as it gets, the equivalent of losing a pope or a president or other public figure of that stature. The difference being Jeff Beck was uncontroversial and universally and unequivocally beloved. So because of the timing, Jeff Beck's passing is not addressed in this episode, but it will be a part of the next one. Rest in peace and Jeff Beck forever. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me. And let's do this. We were doing a lot of work for the Stones back in those days, whenever they went on tour. I saw the photo of they Keith. Would, they would run like 30 instruments through yeah. the shop for setups and everything. So the production guy, Pierre de Beauport, asked me if I could recommend a nylon string for Keith that would be uh, back in a stadium concert. Uh, 
And so I grabbed that guitar and said, here, I just finished this. Why don't you borrow it and let Keith try it? Keith loved it. He mm. called it Electric Guts and then <laughs> ordered a second one as a backup. Moods and Modes, episode 36. Welcome, everybody. Happy 2023. Can you believe it is 2023 already? I can't. And we're going to kick things off this year with a very special episode, one that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. So my guest is Roger Sadowski of Sadowski Guitars. And before we get into things, I'll just say that there's not a lot of housekeeping to do up front. I don't have time to do a lot of housekeeping. I'm prepping to head to Lake Las Vegas for Joe Satriani's G4 experience with Peter Frampton, Steve Lukather, Mateus Asado, Corey Wong, all kinds of people, all kinds of crazy guitar players. Did I mention Eric Gales and John Five? It's a little intimidating, to be honest. I've even spoken to a couple others, and I think we're all a little intimidated. I talked to Steve Lukather after his Ringo Starr concert in Seattle, and he's like, man, I got to practice. I'm, Steve, you're going to be fine. Anyway, I'm sure I'll have a lot to report on that on the next episode. I may have a few thoughts on the new year, which I'll share during the break. And uh, let's get straight to this episode. So this was taped just as things were shutting down for the holidays pretty recently. And I had a lot of fun with this. I brought along a couple friends of mine who are bass players, professional bass players, both excellent at what they do, but very different. You wouldn't hear them doing each other's gigs. And they happen to both be very close to me, among my favorite people, which made this all the more fun. And I'll talk about them more in a moment. But first, Roger Sadowski. Now, Roger has become a little bit more synonymous with the bass over the years. I have a few theories about why that is, which I will share. But he began with guitars, first as a modifier, then as a builder. And he still builds guitars. They are excellent. And the word excellent is a complete understatement, by the way. And we're going to focus on bass first. But before that, let me give you a little background on Roger. This is from his website. He grew up in New York City in the 1950s. And while attending university, he took up guitar as a hobby. Now, he was on a completely different path than where he ended up. He was in a PhD program at Rutgers University for psychobiology. Psychobiology? Do you even know what this is? I'm not sure I do. And I'm from an academic family. Anyway, he left his PhD program with one year left to go. I'm sure the parents were thrilled. <laughs> I know how mine would react, and it's not pretty. And he did this to apprentice with a guitar builder in New Jersey, Augie Loprinzi. And after a couple years, he uh, took over a repair shop in Philadelphia where he built up his reputation for repair and restoration. And his reputation was so good, in fact, that within a few years, he was able to relocate back to New York and work full time restoring and repairing instruments for musicians at the top of the New York studio scene. So this time period is the late 70s and early 80s. And one of those musicians that brought him an instrument was Marcus Miller, the great bass player. And... Roger completely overhauled his bass, refretted it, gave it a preamp, did what can best be described as exacting specifications. 
And the result is the first example of what can be described as the Sadowski sound. So Marcus ends up using this instrument on albums by Aretha Franklin, Elton John, jazz artists doing their more accessible music, including Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, George Benson, Al Jarreau. And a few years later, seminal pop recordings of the 80s, like Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. All of which is to say that the Sadowski sound is being widely heard on bass. But he's also doing guitars. And at this time, guys are bringing him guitars. And he's telling them, you know what? Buy a early 60s Fender a pre-CBS Strat, which you could do at that time. They weren't that expensive. And he would fix it up and just make it a top-notch instrument. Not that those early Fenders weren't great to begin with, but they needed the proper setup. They needed a few tweaks, especially as far as the electronics. The early 60s electronics really weren't designed for the studio recording of the 1980s, where the hum would be really obvious. Anyway, Roger would do a bunch of tweaks and make those guitars studio-ready. But of course, we all know what happened with the early vintage Fenders and Gibsons, for that matter. They became status symbols worth exorbitant amounts of money. I had a conversation with Nightbob about this on a recent episode of this podcast. Nightbob, the legendary guitar tech and builder himself, who is right-hand man for Walter Becker, who, among other guitars, played a Sadowski. So prior to the early to mid-80s, you could pick up a vintage Fender guitar or bass pre-CBS, bring it to Roger, have him work his magic. The whole process would cost you under $2,000. Not anymore. It's gotten to the point where you have to say, do I buy this guitar or put a down payment on a home? In some cases, the instrument is worth the whole home. So seeing where things were going, Roger decided it was time to manufacture his own line of instruments. Instruments with the same quality that most of us are being priced out of with an extremely high quality to cost ratio. They are affordable, not cheap, mind you, but affordable, great value for the buck. And since then has made instruments for a number of noteworthy players. The clip that kicked us off mentioned Keith Richards, also Paul Simon. Roger made a half a dozen guitars for the Purple Rain Tour by Prince in 1984. Friend of the pod, Pat Metheny, is a Sadowski owner. I imagine he has more than one. I'm not 100% sure. I already mentioned Walter Becker. The late, great Jim Hall had a signature Sadowski that Roger built for him. And if I'm not mistaken, continues to be the most in-demand model of the Sadowski line, at least as far as guitars. But let's get back to low end for a moment. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Sadowski brand is a little more synonymous with bass. Why is that? Well, we already discussed Marcus Miller. Now, the name Marcus Miller might not be as recognizable as some of the names he's been associated with, Miles Davis and David Sanborn, for example, and especially pop artists like Mariah Carey and Elton John. Now, among people who play bass and people who buy basses, he is like one of those figures. So the aura of the early association of Sadowski and Marcus Miller is still there to this day, even though Fender ended up making Marcus an offer for a signature bass that he could not refuse. Let's put it this way. When I bought my bass, which I just used for home recording and demos, I went to Guitar Center and there were two Fender signature jazz basses to choose from. One was Marcus Miller. The other was Getty Lee. 
I went with the Marcus Miller. It has served me well. It's a very good instrument, but I know it would not be what it is without Roger Sadowski. And there are a few other bass players with the same studio credibility as Marcus Miller, but one of them is Will Lee. Now, Will Lee is not just one of the most recorded bassists of all time, but until recent years was one of the most visible. playing alongside Paul Schaefer in Late Night and later Late Show with David Letterman, starting from around the time he met Roger in the early 80s. So Will Lee is a towering bass presence thanks to Late Night Television, in which he played a Sadowski and has a Sadowski signature instrument. Also, Tal Wilkenfeld, who is of a much younger generation, but has played with Jeff Beck. She's also played with Herbie Hancock and others. And there are plenty more bassists in high-profile positions who have been or once were associated with Sadowski, including Jason Newstead during Metallica's prime. So all of this has contributed to the brand being a little more bass-associated, and Warwick, the big manufacturer in Germany, I'm now mass-producing these basses, but keeping the quality as close as possible to hand-built. Now, on the guitar side, we've already discussed how Rogers built guitars for some real giants who clearly value these instruments. They use them, they don't let them go, but they tend not to be the main standalone instruments the way Will Lee's Sadowski bass is for him, for example. Now, there are guitarists who have played Sadowski as their main instrument. They tend not to have the same visibility, but what they don't have in visibility, they more than make up for in respectability. We already mentioned Jim Hall. There's Frank Vignola, who plays a signature Sadowski. And let's not forget Vic Juras, the late, great guitarist, educator, of whom I am currently working on a tribute episode for this podcast. Now, Vic had several Sadowski guitars, and for his last few years or so, played them almost exclusively. He was a mutual friend of myself and Roger, which brings up a couple important points. One is that it's easy to be friends with Roger, and that's not always the case with instrument manufacturers. With some of them, it can be a little weird, like they're always trying to get you to buy their instrument, and the conversation always steers back to that. With Roger, there's no agenda. It doesn't matter, even if you don't own one of his instruments. I do want to own one at some point, but that's neither here nor there. The other important point is that Roger is friends with the people he builds instruments for, and he doesn't discriminate. You don't have to be Paul Simon or Keith Richards. Most of us aren't. His shop, which has moved around the city a couple times, is now in Long Island City, New York, and has a warm atmosphere with his staff of about half a dozen or so, and Mrs. Sadowski and their dog. And speaking of friends, as I mentioned earlier, I had the pleasure of being joined by two great ones on this excursion. They're both Sadowski bass players. One is Tanya O'Callaghan. So Tanya made a name for herself in her native Ireland, playing on high-profile Irish TV shows and with many Irish bands, and then relocated to Southern California, where she has been a bassist for hire for all types of genres as pop, funk, R&B, blues, the show Riverdance, which should be no surprise being Irish. But what is a surprise is she's been embraced by a lot of classic rockers from acts that are generally very male acts, such as Whitesnake. <laughs> she's their first female musician on bass as of 2022. 
D. Schneider from Twisted Sister, Stephen Adler of Guns N' Roses, uh, Maynard Keenan from Tool, and more. She's also extremely busy as an activist from environmentalism to social justice to vegan activism, but always in a positive, non-judgmental, and kind way. The best kind. At some point, we will do an episode with Tanya, who has been extremely supportive of this podcast from when I was first getting it together. Very encouraging. And we'll talk about her many irons in the fire. Also joining us is Nathan Peck of the Alex Skolnick Trio and other artists. In fact, Nathan once played with another Maynard, Maynard Ferguson. And Nate does a lot of gigs for hire, including one that was largely kept under wraps until recently, a certain wedding that took place at the White House. Now, Nathan came up in the Pittsburgh music scene of the 90s and early 2000s, which included a young drummer, Matt Zabrowski, who I met during my time attending the new school in New York. Shortly after moving to New York, Nate sat in with my trio, and we've been playing together ever since, including in projects led by him and co-led by both of us. Now, our trio has a lot of acoustic bass, but we do have some electric songs. And on those songs, Nate always plays his Sadowski. In fact, you may know that the bass line that kicks off the outro to this podcast is our tune Conundrum, played on Nathan's Sadowski five-string bass. Now, Nate couldn't stay too long because he was off to a gig, as he often is. Tanya couldn't stay that long because she had to catch a flight back to California, but I had them around long enough for us to get a nice walkthrough and a good hang with Roger and company. And then when Nate and soon after Tanya had to head out, I sat down with Roger one-on-one in his showroom, played some of the guitars, talked to him about the instruments and his history. So I'm going to let things run as much as possible. I will jump in from time to time to explain when things aren't clear. One more thing. The audio in the beginning is terrible. I promise you it's going to get better. I just wanted to capture the entrance as it's really fun. Occasionally, things will get noisy. It is a guitar workshop after all. Overall, however, I think the audio is quite good, especially in the second half where I sit down with Roger. So without further ado, sit back and enjoy our field trip to Sadowski Guitars. obvious what's going on but just in case tanya and i walk in we say hello to roger he's working on a guitar needs five or ten more minutes and i say hello to robin mrs sadowski who i'm meeting for the first time and their dog and there's a little bit of warbling as we're walking around but that should go away soon so we're going to cut to about 10 minutes later roger calls us over to watch him finish up and he's working on an instrument that's a very unique shade of green and you'll hear nathan arriving to join the party and you'll hear us switch to cute voices as the dog comes to greet us once again. I have no idea. Did you name it that? I didn't name it. <laughs> Is that a new color? We, we've been doing it. it for a while. It's beautiful. Kind of semi-metallic, but not quite. No, there's no metallic in this. It's just from a distance, it looks like. From a distance. Yeah. From a distance. Yeah. <laughs> Gorgeous. Five strings. Too many strings. 
Enter Nathan Peck. <laughs> yeah. All right. I didn't realize he's so close to Spin Studio. It's right around the corner. Literally right, right around yeah. the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Could have been coming here on our breaks. Yeah. We, we will next time. Yeah, he just told well, me that. This wasn't here. A lot of the shops weren't built up so much. Okay, so right there I'm referring to the specific area where we are in Long Island City, Queens. And it's right around the corner from the studio where we've recorded for a long time, Nate and I. And the area used to be mostly industrial, a lot of warehouses, some vacant lots, a few auto body shops. But now it is thriving with hip coffee places and a few restaurants and, of course, Roger's shop. How are you doing, Roger? I'm a little harried right now, right. but I'm good. How are you? Yeah. Gentry are right. How's the bass been since I redid the night? Yes. Since we redid. Yes. Sounded good the other night. Who are you? Hi. I don't know you. Hello. Hi, thank you for the kiss. It's great. Which one is yours? I What's have your main one. It's the five string NYC 24 fret. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that is some... What would you have? Four. <laughs> Too many strings, right? I know. I also have I mean, a five string yeah, NYC. Yeah. I need well. to get it for Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I, Oh, it's beautiful. Was that many frets? <gasps> yeah. Would you? <laughs> Eight pounds crazy. even. Yeah, I couldn't resist. Uh, you can see I played it so much, it's all dinged up. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Which really shows on metallic. Yeah. Which is a lot. This know, color is stunning. I've never seen yeah. it. So that's proper metallic right there. Candy yeah. apple orange. Candy apple orange. Ooh, now I'm going to need one. And then but against the wood, it's stunning. So I, I had him give me the, the narrower five string nut here with the corresponding, you know, reshape of the neck and everything, because the standard width is a little bit, a little wider, you know. And then gotcha. I have an, another five with a little B, another Sadowski five. And the Crap. apple orange. Yeah. I've never seen this color. This is amazing. And then I opted for the Brazilian rose with fingerboard and the roasted maple neck and. The rose and maple is stunning say, against the metallic, up. though. Yeah. Oh yeah. Seriously yeah. though, like the, yeah. the color. Coordination between the two is so yeah. beautiful. Yeah, when I, when I started thinking about those kind of things, it was like, oh, geez, how can I have a really brighter neck with this? But also, there's something with the roasting process that gives it, I think it, um, it's more aged, the wood is more dry, more solid, more resonant, you know, that kind of thing. All right, in case that wasn't clear, let me begin with the last thing that Nate said. He was talking about the roasting process. Yes, just like coffee, but in this case, talking about a maple neck that is roasted and the roasting process, which he says results in wood that is more aged, more dry, more solid and more resonant. And just before that, some further details about the neck, including its width, the size of the nut, which separates the headstock from the fingerboard. And the fact that the fingerboard is Brazilian rosewood, which we'll hear more about. So is your base the same as his, the same model? I have a five string NYC as well, different, uh -huh. different neck, but I have two four strings as well. And okay. I'm just trying out a Metro now with the DiMarzio pickups now. So I'm messing around with, with a few different, but the main one I play is my four string. Always, that comes everywhere. I just gave it a makeover recently. I just like oh, yeah. bet it up and relicked it and put black hardware all over it. Nice. But I figured it was more white snake looking. That's right. <laughs> I was like, it's time to look more metal. Yeah. You've gotten pulled into these metal situations. It's hysterical. Right? I'm just, for some Which reason, I'm the, I'm the one who plays with all the 80s people. Yeah. <laughs> I have the 80s covered. <laughs> yeah, she's next year. She's doing this thing with Bruce Dickinson and a tribute to John Lord. Yeah. 
Yeah. More 80s? Yeah. <laughs> Deep purple. Well, actually yeah. 70s. Yeah. 70s and yeah. true, yeah. yeah. Although Alex has given me the full rundown on it because I didn't grow up with it. He, he seems to educate me on all the... I told him, made in Japan, <laughs> live. <laughs> all right, just to elaborate on that, I told Tanya that now that you're hired to play bass with an orchestra paying tribute to the late great John Lord of Deep Purple, it would be good to familiarize yourself with a live album that they did called Made in Japan. Now, Made in Japan not only featured Mr. Lord extensively, it inspired a slightly later band called Iron Maiden to do an album called Made in Japan. Two words. And adding to the fun, the vocals on this tour that pays tribute to John Lord will be handled by none other than the singer of Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson himself. So right here, we gave Roger a few more minutes to finish up what he was doing with that instrument. And Robin walked us around. She goes by Robin Phillips, by the way. I know I called her Mrs. Sadowski. They are married, and she helps run the company. So this is all the Tom from next. Uh-huh. He'll go into it more with you. I needed you to pull away because I needed him to pay attention to the paperwork he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Very smart. Very smart. So, so yeah, sometimes people like to come by and pick out their tops and necks and everything like that. Is that how it works? They come and they you check out all the... If you come to the shop, uh-huh. otherwise you can do it online or on the phone. But right. if you're in the area, it behooves you to come in and and pick out. Is that what you did? I think that might be important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, and in case that wasn't clear, Nate is confirming that, like other customers, he handpicked his own fingerboard from this stockpile of wood. Now, here we've walked to a different area that is much noisier, and she is explaining to me a little bit about permits and dealing with the city. However, it's so hard to hear that it's almost comical. There's all these codes yeah, and fire inspectors that come. Yeah, and, the, and then they come every year. And you need to keep track of every um, bit of every chemical you spray. You have to keep the receipts so that they know how much you can spray. But, you know, that be said, you do get a really nice outcome because it's not dusty in here. <laughs> Okay, I wasn't kidding. So right there, we were walking through a different part of the shop. And the last thing she said was, that being said, we do get a really nice outcome because it's not dusty in here. And we are in a closed off area. And I mentioned earlier that there was a staff on hand of about half a dozen. They seem mostly like uh, young adults in their 30s and 40s and at least one young lady. And some of them are assisting with this work that's making all the noise. But some of it is being done entirely by machines, which contributes to the noise. And Robin was explaining that every chemical and every amount of that chemical that gets sprayed has to be carefully documented and reported to inspectors from the city of New York. And it's an awful lot of work, but she understands it and it's worth it. So right here we have the return of Roger, who has finished up his paperwork. It's still a little bit noisy, but the noise will die down. Roger, Roger, Roger. So, Roger, I'm not closing the top on that thing until the guy comes in. Oh, yeah, fine. He'll be in at 3.30. We have Roger. This is the way we chamber our buckets. Yeah, tell me in, tell us anything you want to tell so, us. So, in the early 80s, I was doing work for all the studio guys uh-huh. in the city, mostly 
modification and upgrades on their existing instruments, which tended to be late 50s, early 60s fenders. And so like in the basses, for example, I would be installing my active tone circuit, refretting them, new nut, new bridge, blah, blah, blah. And I noticed that even with the same work I did, some instruments were much more better than others. And I tried to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I came to the conclusion that the best were the ones that were the lightest in weight and simultaneously the most acoustically powerful. Mm -hmm. So I would always tell people back then, you know, if you're buying a Fender, pick three of them and pick the one that sounds best unamplified. So back in about 25 years ago, I, I couldn't get my body wood as light as I wanted it to be. Back in those days, none of the vendors would select by weight. So I started chambering the bodies to reduce the weight and increase the resonance. And we still do that today. So today our bases pretty much range from seven and three quarters to eight and a half pounds. That's our target weight. Which is the best thing ever for like yeah. musicians. Yeah. I mean, plus, with everyone getting older, nobody wants to oh, hold a 10 pound down. instrument for sure. a three hour gig. You yeah. know, I've got it's just. So, when did you switch from modifying the existing instruments? Well, what happened is by the mid to late 80s, the vintage market took oh. off. And all of a sudden, that $800 L-series jazz bass, or, or early Strat, uh, was, was now 3000 whatever. And I realized that all the work I was doing was devaluing them as vintage instruments. Sure. So if they were total players from the get-go, no problem. But if they were still pretty original, I decided I can't be doing this anymore. So that's when I really started focusing on making my own instruments mm -hmm. and incorporating everything into them that I brought to modifying the Fenders. Around what, what era was that? Or Mid 80s. And I still always try to balance my repair work and building 50-50, but by 2002, when I moved to Dumbo, I had a fair amount of crew turnover. And I realized I can train someone on my instrument production in about a year, but to be a good repairman takes years and years of experience sure. on a lot of different instruments. So all the repair work was falling on me, and I mm. couldn't manage that and everything and else building. I had to do. So at that point, I, I just do repairs on my instruments. Mm. Do you remember when you built your first instrument? Yeah, well, my first electric guitar was in 80, and my first bass was in 82. Do you still have them? Uh, I have clients. Uh, I have a customer in Jersey who still has. It's got it. Yeah. It's number one forty-two, I think. And wow. Still one of my. How about the first? My earliest, string? huh? How about the first five string? That was in ninety. That was in ninety. I was late to yeah. doing five More strings. More recent. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, as soon as we started doing five strings, I always had a twenty-four fret four-string and five-string model. But, but it, uh, well maybe, maybe I didn't at that time, I didn't. So what happened is as soon as I did my first batch of five strings, all of a sudden everyone's asking for 24 frets because not only do they have the extra range on the low end, they want a little extra range on the high end. Yeah, exactly. So it's your fault, Nathan. So um, five strings were, you know, 
uh, Federa and, yeah. and, and uh, that uh, Ken Smith. Yeah, they were they were doing five strings yeah. much earlier than I was. So. I also realized that um, I my primary clientele are not the soloing bass players. It's they're the hold down the bottom end the groove and the bass player, the groove right. bass player. And that's really been true for yeah. my whole career. That's wow. really who I appeal to the most. Which are more in demand now, the five or the four? Right now, I'm thinking it's five strings are a little more popular now. For a long time, I was making four, more four strings than any of my colleagues, like Mike Tobias and Federa and any of those guys. But now I'd say it's maybe 60% fives. Wow. Nice. Are you so. being forced up to six strings next? Uh, <laughs> we are. <laughs> we, we, may, we may do that really? with, with the Warwick, with the Metro. Okay. One. We may oh, six right. Right. But I, I kind of drew a line in the sand for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Fives enough. So, so good to say. When did you look up with Warwick? That was in the last few That years was back. in 2019. Yeah. So I had hey, been recently. manufacturing a, a lower line in Japan yeah. from 2003. And it, they were wonderful bases. It was our Metro line and our Metro Express. And then my partner in Japan was really only interested in the Japanese market. So mm -hmm. I had to handle all the sales outside mm -hmm. of Japan. And at my age, my point in my career, I want to be at my workbench. I don't want to be at my computer sure. doing sales. Yeah. You know, so uh, I figured I what I spent a couple years looking for who the right partner would be. I needed someone with an amazing factory, mm -hmm. and someone who had international distribution. And Hans Peter had years ago bought several bases for me. And that's his, the head of Warwick. Yeah. Yeah, so for his bass showroom for the bass camps he was doing, because yeah. he didn't want only his basses mm -hmm. for people to try. So we already knew each other, and I just woke up early in January of 19, and I said, Hans Peter's the guy. There's no one else who, mm -hmm. who checks all the boxes. So I wrote him an email early in January of 19, uh, asking if he'd be interested in doing a licensing production with me for my Metro bases. And a couple hours later, I get an email from him, Roger, I'm so excited, I can't sleep tonight, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And it was pretty much a match made in heaven. And like the only issue was we started production in 20, first year of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that was really difficult. I couldn't travel to Germany, I couldn't travel to China because we have a lower, and the Metro Express is made in China, it's an entry-level base. So we had a bunch of production issues in 20, but they all got dialed out by 21, and now everything's just gone great. Yeah. So, and hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll be doing guitars in addition to bases. Ooh, you heard that right, folks. That's exciting news. The plan is, in a couple of years, to have Sadowski guitars that are an alternative to the higher-priced hand-built version, more affordable, more widely available, and a result of Roger's partnership with Hans Peter, really great guy who runs a massive company, Warwick Framus, that manages to keep the quality really high. And the base camp Roger mentioned, that was an annual event put on in Germany at the Warwick Framus factory. And I was actually on faculty at the last one. I think it was 2017. And I played alongside Dennis Chambers and Alfonso Johnson. I mean, what a dream. 
And uh, I was actually the only guitar player until the end of the week when it became a big party and musicians were flown in from all over the world, mostly bassists, a few guitars. And it became uneconomically sustainable to keep this up. But it was a great event. It's actually where I first met Tanya. And the fact that Hans Peter's partnership with Roger, with his Warwick Famous Factory and worldwide distribution, is now going to be applied to Sadowski guitars as well as basses is great news indeed. It'll put Sadowski guitars in many more hands. And on that positive note, let's take a quick break. And it's time for our sort of midway, approximately on the half hour, very short break. I hope you've been enjoying this visit with Sadowski Guitars so far. And I realize it has been quite a bit bass focused, but in the second half, our bass friends are going to take their leave. And much as I love them both and love having them, it will be time to talk guitars. So I will sit down with Roger one-on-one and the focus will be guitar. Speaking of guitar. So remember I started this episode and I was frantically getting ready for the G4 experience fronted by Joe Satriani. Well, I managed to put together about a third of this episode when it was time to get on a plane and I brought enough podcast equipment to continue if I had any breaks. But needless to say, I was slammed busy, zero free time. And let me just say that the G4 experience was as great as it looked on paper beyond any expectation or imagination. I cannot wait to share more about it. And there's too much to talk about right now, but I'm trying to figure out a constructive way to share the experience, hopefully using this podcast. So stay tuned on Not Intended. And finally, some live shows to announce. My main projects, if you will, the Alex Long Trio and Testament are both in massive writing mode, but I'm getting a chance to play with the great Stu Ham and Chad Wackerman on drums, an all-time hero. We are at the Baked Potato in good old L of A on February 4th. And packed Percy Jones, Alex Golnick, Kenny Grahowski, and Tim Motzer is back. Saturday, February 18th at New Blue in New York City in the East Village. Sunday, February 19th in Philadelphia, PA at Solar Myth. Wednesday, March 1st in Chicago at the Shack at Reggie's Live. Thursday, March 2nd in Indianapolis. Haven't played there in a while. Irving Theater. And finally, Saturday, March 4th, Westland, Detroit, downstairs at Joy Manor. That's exciting. Oh, uh, Cincinnati, Sunday, March 5th. Can't wait to visit Mike's Music. Great music store there. And I believe some more shows may be announced. That's it for now. Stay tuned and let's get back to Roger Sadowski and Sadowski Guitars. Oh, and just a quick word about this next segment. This is interesting because he's talking about woods, specifically endangered woods. And I had read a book about guitar makers called Guitar Makers, The Endurance of Artisanal Values in North America by a Yale professor, Catherine Marie Dudley. Now, it is an academic textbook, but it reads very well. You don't need to be a doctoral student to understand it. And she talks to many guitar builders, including Roger. And I had forgotten about this. I read it uh, in 2020. And the book includes extensive coverage of the specific problem of endangered woods, a challenge affecting guitar making at all levels, from Gibson and Fender, who are like the Coke and Pepsi of guitar builders. You may recall Gibson getting raided by the feds a number of years ago because of endangered woods. That was all over the news to the independent artist in his little shop, like Roger. 
I think what he has to say about it is quite interesting. Check it out. How much Robin went over you in the wood? This is fingerboards. A little bit, yeah. Four and five string guitars up there. I have Brazilian rosewood and Amazon rosewood. Township Brazilian out of the U.S. anymore. Yeah, there's a lot of very complicated paperwork. You have to prove you purchased it legally prior to 1972, which I can't. You know, the guy would call me and say, uh, I got some nice Brazilian, are you interested? Wow. He'd pull up in front of where I was living, open the trunk of his car, give him 400 bucks cash. I mean, that's oh how you bought wood yeah. 40 years ago. It's so, like right out of the French connection. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> this is all Madagascar rosewood. This is Palferro, it's also wow. known as Cabiuna, and Bolivian rosewood, maple boards, ebony boards. Hmm. And these are my figure tops. Uh-huh. We have Buckeye Burl, Macassar Ebony, Walnut, Mango and Myrtle, uh, Amboynia Burl, Tasmanian Blackwood, Salam from Mexico, <laughs> Koa, Quilted Maple, Burl, Maple Burl, Spalted Maple, Flame Maple. It's so cool to see it. Coco Bolo like and Zirico. Yeah. That's ebony for my archtop tail pieces. I try to buy my ebony a few years before I need it because it takes so long to dry it. Sure. This is our neck finishing area. This is Gabby. She does the final sanding on the necks. She gets it all prepped for spray. And by prep for spray, I mean we burn in our logo on the heel, we put our logo on the headstock. Cool. Uh, the darker boards get taped off, only the maple boards get mm-hmm. finished. And this is the spray room. Yeah, we were in here before. Okay. And we're back in the spray room, which you may recall was where Robin described the process of keeping tabs on all chemical use for the sake of the annual inspection that takes place on behalf of the city of New York. You may also recall that it was really loud in there. So let's jump ahead a little bit. So I grade my top wood, my figure tops as standard grade and master grade. So if they're going to be a master grade, I wanted the customer to be able to pick the toppy one. So I photograph them all mm-hmm. and they're up on the website. And so if you're ordering a master grade top, you can pick, pick the one you want. Beautiful. So these are all future tops, right? Yeah. I won't know until I'm finished prepping them and photographing them if they're mm-hmm. all uh, master grade or not, but this is the next batch I'm working on. This is the machinery room. This is where we can all the noisy, dirty work. Okay. So, that's Isaac. Uh, hey, Isaac. He trimmed his fingerboards in the far rear bench. That's our, uh, our sandblaster. What were you sandblasting, Isaac? Uh, switched it. A what? Switched it for a Oh, okay. And we, that's a, uh, a downdraft table behind it for uh, sanding bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, two bandsaws, that's a big line, a big piece, smaller bandsaw. This is our routing table. Mm-hmm. We have two under table routers and a bunch of other routers. So this is all for routing the various pickups on the bodies. Mm. We have. Oh, okay. That's how you made. get it yeah, exactly made. right. Exactly. Let's redo the chambering too. Is that no, no. The chambering is done on the CNC before oh, the top goes yes. off. Thickness sander, 
joiner planer, belt sander, buffer, dust collector for all the noise in the dirt. Mostly. I would not know what to do with any of these. Belt sander, dust collector, bandsaw. Not only would I not know what to do with any of these tools, I wouldn't be able to pick them out in a police lineup. So this is Lucas, my production manager. Hi, yes. At your service. Shit. <laughs> nice to meet you. How are you? So Lucas coordinates our entire production in terms of picking the right wood for the right order. Every instrument is designed on paper. So once the neck is sprayed and the body is sprayed, one of our other guys, including Lucas, builds the entire instrument up from that point. I never wanted a factory mentality here. Mm -hmm. It's an artisanal workshop, and that's how we like. I mean, look at just that drawer front. I mean, wow. <laughs> 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 yeah, Got to put the nice touches on. That's right. So that's all you're uh, doing over there. Yeah, so he's yeah. adding all that stuff, all this wood cool. together, and this is his workbench here. So that's the drawer is coming wow. 2020. <laughs> I'm a huge fan, man. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good to meet you. Oh, man, good to meet you, too. Shit, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of nervous. <laughs> uh, I never okay. fan, You're on my podcast. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, Nate, yeah, my bass yeah, player. Conundrum. Yeah, yeah. So this is our fret system that we mm -hmm. built. And we took an, an arbor press uh -huh. and made a fret press out of it. Mm -hmm. So nice. the neck moves along here and we lightly tap in the fret and squeeze it in all the way. Uh, that's how frets go in, you know? I kind of never really knew that. That's and how frets go in. <laughs> it's like the birds and the beads, right? <laughs> that's how, how we do the fret work after the frets are installed, the remaining fret work. This is one of my builder's benches, so mm -hmm. I, it's Jacob right there. Hey, Jacob. So these are instruments, I, uh, Jacob, these are instruments he's building right now. So there's um, multiple builders. Yeah. You're, you're like the executive chef in the kitchen. Isaac, turn that around so Alex can see the front. Check out that color. Ooh, I yeah, love that color. I love the green. Yeah. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, I really like the color and the color together. That's it's, unique. It's really nice. Yeah. yeah. And he's my main fingerboard truer and fretter. Uh, hey, Tom. Hey, Tom. And Gabby, who's in the back, this is her bench. Uh, yeah. Hey, this, Gabby, who's not there? Check parts like before they go to spray. Uh, or, so, right now, you know, we have the neck pulled and the body pulled. What's the next step? Next wow. step is to route for the pickups. Yeah, it's almost uh, ready to go. And then, yeah. then it'll go to spray. We have to install the block inlays, all that kind of stuff. And Darcy primarily helps me hey, out with all of our art shops. Mm -hmm. And he does the final fret work and set up. Yeah, that's what I'll, I'll have some questions about. Yeah. So Enough of this bass stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Enough bass that's for now. On to guitar. Yeah. We're going to head to the airport. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How are you doing? It was short, but sweet. Like, yeah. Short, but sweet. 15, yeah, right. Yeah. Let's, let's move into this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could hang on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> have a great yeah. afternoon. This, this is so great. This is perfect. Okay. So, as you can hear, goodbyes are being said. Nathan's heading to a gig. Tanya's heading to the airport. And Roger is saying, let's go to the showroom. And here I will check out some of the guitars he has on display. And I will sit down and talk to Roger one-on-one. -on -one. Thank you for doing it. Oh, my pleasure. Well, it's great. great to have you. We've been trying to connect for ages. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you gave us a really good rundown of the bases. Right. The woods and 
history. I mean, what else would you want? Well, we didn't say? talk about guitars much. We have not. No. So I've always made solid body guitars as well. Same principle, chambered bodies, lightweight. You started with solid bodies? Yeah, I started with solid bodies. There's a Tele style that we just finished. Yeah, right there. That's really nice. And the one on top is my electric nylon string guitar. That the first two I made of those. I made them because the studio guys all had Chet Atkins nylons mm -hmm. and they were all complaining how heavy they were and mm -hmm. how bad the intonation was. So I was doing a lot of mods on those. I was removing the Gibson pickup yeah. and installing, uh, filling the slot with a piece of wood and recutting mm -hmm. a regular saddle slot and like installing Fishman mm -hmm. pickups and uh -huh. things like that. So I made my first electric nylon in 1990. Mm -hmm. And just after I finished the first one, mm -hmm. we were doing a lot of work for the Stones back in those days, whenever they went on tour. I saw the photo of they Keith. Would, they would run like 30 instruments through yeah. the shop for uh, setups and everything. So uh, the production guy, Pierre de Beauport, asked me if I could recommend a nylon string for Keith that would be uh -huh. back in a stadium concert. Uh -huh. And so I grabbed that guitar and said, here, I just finished this. Why don't you borrow it and let Keith try it? Keith loved it. He mm. called it Electric Guts and then ordered <laughs> a second one as a backup. Nice. And he used it on the Steel Wheels tour back in 1990. In fact, they just okay. posted on his Facebook page uh -huh. in September the clip of him playing that uh, on uh, Ruby Tuesday or Paint It Black. It was one of those two. I was going to ask what song yeah, was. Yeah. I'll, I'll grab that. That's great. Yeah. And I reposted it on my site yesterday nice. so you can find it there. So I've got a lot of Brazilian guys, yeah. Gilberto Gil and Siobhan playing the electric nylon. Earl Klug used to play it. Lee mm -hmm. Rittenauer has played it since 92. Mm -hmm. So it really appeals. I built it for the electric musician yeah. coming to nylon rather than the classical musician mm. coming to it. Sure. And so it's got a slightly narrower neck than a classical guitar would be. It's got a radius in the fingerboard. So electric players find it very comfortable. Yeah. And you know, why don't we address why all my instruments are so Fender style? Okay. In 1980, if you got the local 802 union directory, uh -huh. there were two chapters for bass, acoustic bass and Fender bass. Really? And all mm -hmm. electric basses were considered Fender bass back then. Okay. And a lot of the, the studio work were jingle sessions, uh -huh. which are short sessions. And they were not going to take 10 minutes to dial in the sound on a bass they had never recorded before. God. So there was a lot of pressure for the players to show up with either a J bass or a P bass. And Which they um, were familiar with. Yeah, exactly. The session. And most all of my modification and upgrade work was done on Fenders anyway. Mm -hmm. I never found Gibson or 
guitars and profited much from any kind of trying to upgrade them. They are what they are. They are what they, they are. Right. The they do they what are. they do. And yeah. that's it. Fender is allowed a lot of customization. I can mm -hmm. install a humbucker in the neck on a Strat. I can install one in the bridge. Yeah. Well, that's know. what uh, Van Halen did. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Take a Strat, tie it, tie the guitar. Right. Change it around. So, Never um, did that with Gibson. So it was due to that pressure to basically show up at a studio with, with a Fender. It was four guitars. It was a Strat, Tele, uh, Les Paul 335. Mm -hmm. And for basses, it was J bass and P bass. That was it, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So that's where I felt the pressure to build an offender style, as well as the fact that I feel Leo miraculously got 90% of it right from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And all I did was raise the bar and try to take it to a higher level. Mm -hmm. All my early work was involved with shielding electronics so that mm -hmm. guys didn't get a lot of hum. Sure. The studio guys back in those days, a lot of them, no one knew how to shield instruments then. Mm -hmm. They would take a, a wire and put an alligator clip on one end and clip it like to the bridge or the string behind the saddle. Mm -hmm. And the other end was stripped and they'd stick it behind the elastic band of their... Uh, That's a great ring. Of their... Um, uh, that was Will Lee code. Uh, oh, okay. And they'd stick the other end behind the elastic of their underwear to, uh, to keep the instrument grounded. Because uh, as soon as they took their hands off the strings, they'd get a loud... Wait, explain that yeah. one more. <laughs> so the, the grounding yeah. they took the on a guitar okay. is connected to the bridge. So yeah. when you touch the strings, the extraneous hum goes away. Yes. Okay? So... Um, That's why when you... Let go of the guitar. Exactly. So they were clipping one end of this wire to the string behind the saddle, uh -huh. and the other end sticking behind the elastic of their underwear. Yeah. So it was making direct contact with their skin, Go and it was on. keeping the guitar grounded whether their hands were on it or not. That's so. I started doing a lot of shielding work, which eliminated all that stuff. Right. Then. No need for underwear right. elastic. Right, exactly. <laughs> good thing, and, good thing um, to eliminate. <laughs> all right, so just so that's clear, anybody who's ever played an electric guitar, even casually, knows that when you touch the guitar, there's this hum that disappears, and it returns again when you let go of the guitar when you're plugged into the amp. Now imagine you're on a recording session, it's high pressure, either a major label pop star or a jingle, and you are not required to play except for a very small part of the tune. Well, you don't want to risk being a distraction by creating extra noise. So what some of these guys would do is attach a wire to the elastic in their underwear. What an awkward thing to have to do, although it did eliminate the noise. Thankfully, Roger eliminated the need to have to do this. That's why I said, what a good thing to eliminate. I was doing, you know, really good fingerboard truing and refrats and cutting new nuts and, you know, doing all this stuff. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much how I got, you know, going with everything. So I learned a lot from the studio guys because it taught me that my job is to address the issues they face every day, mm -hmm. live or in the studio. Mm -hmm. And that's what enabled me to develop in what I do to the level I did by having to address these issues. Mm -hmm. And again, a lot of it was noise issues, often affected by uh, barrier lights on stage yes. and 
old studios with old funky wiring, yeah. had issues that newer studios didn't. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff. And yeah. that, that really helped mm -hmm. me develop what I do. Yeah, yeah. Now who were the first? The first official customer, October 1, 1979, was John Schofield. Okay. Good one. Okay. <laughs> and prior to when I opened my shop, I had a good friend and customer from Philly who ah. came to New York in 77. His name is Craig Snyder. And he got right into the studio scene. So he was the one who kept telling me I should come to New York because mm -hmm. there wasn't anyone as good as me in New York, which I found hard to believe. I figured the best people in the world were yeah, here. You already, always figure that. You know. Yeah. So for six months, I was driving up to his apartment on the Upper West Side every Saturday morning. His buddies would bring their instruments over. For, I'd do the simple stuff while they waited, and I'd take the big stuff back to Philly, and a week or two weeks later, bring them back. So I did that for six months. So by the time I started my shop in the fall of 79, I already had a client base. Mm -hmm. But Schofield was, when I officially had, you know, receipts that sent Sadowski guitars on Schofield was got the first one. Nice. And Good way to kick things off. Yeah, okay. yeah. It was great for the next 20 years, every touring musician coming through New York. I mean, all the guitar techs knew mm -hmm. me. So they were the artists weren't coming to the shop, but the guitar the techs, techs were all yeah. bringing their stuff. Now, with Schofield, was that a guitar uh, named? John it was, it was uh, not, yeah, it was probably the early Ibanez that he, you know, became his model, the AS200, mm. you know. Yeah, John was known, quite known already, uh, Abercrombie, all those guys uh, back in the But these days. were guitars that they would bring in? Right, their instruments, right. yeah, for me that to That he would on. modify. Right, or John. just set up or refret or, you know, I think the first thing I did for John was to refret it, you know. Yeah. So working for all those guys really what enabled me to develop the chops that I have. And I've always felt that New York's not an easy place to run a business or no, pay rent or, or, or do anything. <laughs> but when I decided to go on my own, I felt I had to be where the top players were. Uh -huh. And the choices were at that time were L.A., Nashville, or New York. And I'm a native New Yorker, mm -hmm. born in the Bronx, grew up in Queens. Awesome. I chose to come back to New York. But I think if you're out in the boonies without interacting with a lot of working musicians, right. there's no way you can get better at right. what you do. That's right. You know, That's you right. need that feedback from the players. Yeah. So I'm really grateful for all the exposure I had to the players I had. Yeah, I'm the same way as a musician. I, yeah. I need to be around great players. Yeah. You know, it, it, it inspires me to play, play better. Absolutely. So, yeah. And then in, uh, I started taking care of Jim Hall's art shop in 82. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, it yeah. was. Uh, you're very known for the, the Jim Hall. Yeah, model. it was a DeQuisto laminate. Yeah. And just to jump in for a moment, in case you don't know the name DeQuisto, he was one of the great Italian-American archtop builders who was sort of like a sorcerer's apprentice to the great D'Angelico, who we spoke about in a previous episode. I remember at that time, and again, we're talking about 2003, the archtop market had just taken off like crazy. Hmm. But they were like ten to $20,000 for these handmade archtops. And I'm right. thinking to myself, 
one, I don't know a working musician who can afford one. And number two, even if you did, are you going to take it to a brunch gig where the symbol is two inches yeah, from yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. You know. Take and it on taxis exact, and Exactly, subways. exactly. Especially and, the ones that he built. Like right. Kiso or the yeah, Angelico. Right. Yeah, those are... And Gibson was making crap then. I'm sorry. Right. The 175s weighed as much as a Les Paul. Yeah. And the tops were really thick. They had no acoustic resonance at all. That's pretty much universally agreed upon. Yeah. So I said to Jim, Jim, if I can develop an art shop that you would be willing to play, would you, would you get behind me on it? And he said, absolutely. He said, even my students can't afford a decent art yeah. shop anymore. Yeah. So I, I designed my first prototype based uh, on his DeQuisto. Mm. Uh, it's the one in the far right, right there. All the way on the and uh, almost all the specs uh, uh, in terms of body depth and width mm -hmm. and everything. Um, I make the tailpiece. Uh, I make compensated, two compensated bridge stops because Jim was always switching back and forth between a plain G and a wound G, mm. and the intonation point is radically different. Sure. So I designed a bridge stop for a wound G and a, and a bridge stop for a plain G. Uh, the, the pickup we spec'd out off of the pickup in his DeQuisto. It's a basic PAF style pickup. Mm -hmm. and, is that mounted uh, or floating? I'm sorry? Is the pickup mounted? It's mounted. I'm not a believer in floating pickups, and I'll talk to you about that as yeah, well. Yeah, please. Well. I'm kind of the same way. Yeah. I'm so, curious to hear your thoughts. Um, so, Excuse me, can I, I interrupt your thought? Yeah. And as long as there's a break in the conversation, I'm going to jump in as well. Obviously, that was Robin with a quick question about the base she just shipped for Tanya. Sounds like she's finalizing the paperwork. And I just want to elaborate on a few things, as it seems like Roger and I are getting into the guitar equivalent of inside baseball. And I want to make sure we don't go over anybody's heads. No pun intended. So he mentioned Jim Hall fluctuating between a wound G and a flat G. What does that mean? Well, on a guitar, the third string is known as the G string. No relation to the bathing suit or undergarment, although there have been plenty of jokes about that. So on most guitars, the three thick strings on the left-hand side, if you're facing a typical guitar that's not left-handed, will have a rough texture, more like rope. Those are called wound strings. Meanwhile, the two strings farthest to the right are less like metallic rope and more like wire. They're very smooth and they're considered flat. That leaves the third string, the G, which is a bit of a wild card. With occasional exceptions, the G is almost always wound on an acoustic guitar and flat on an electric guitar. But when it comes to arch tops or semi-hollow body guitars, players have different preferences. I like when the third string is lightly wound and use a set by Diodario called Half Rounds. Jim Hall would go back and forth, but now you know what is meant by fluctuating between a wound G and a flat G. And speaking of wound, we were just touching upon the subject of pickups. Roger mentioned the term PAF. That stands for Patent Applied For. It's a type of pickup. It was the industry standard in most Gibson guitars for many years. They're still manufactured and still widely in demand. And finally, we were touching upon the differences between mounted and floating pickups. Mounted pickups are far more common. I believe that's always the case with electric solid body guitars. When it comes to hollow body guitars and especially arch top guitars, Mounted pickups are more common than not. However, quite a few of them have floating pickups in which the top is preserved and the pickup hovers above the body. Now, this creates many more challenges as far as volume and feedback. 
but is thought to preserve the purity and acoustic properties of the guitar. Not everyone agrees. Anyway, all of this came up in the context of Roger describing the process of designing the Sadowski signature model for the late, great Jim Hall. Here's Roger again. Where were we? Uh, I made it a little less deep. I made it about a half inch less deep. So we made two prototypes to start. Mm -hmm. One which had a five-ply, very thin laminate top, much thinner than his DeQuisto hat. Mm -hmm and much thinner than a 175. Mm -hmm. And we did one with a pressed spruce top. Mm -hmm. And the spruce top one was louder acoustically, but amplified, it was muddier and fed back at a much lower volume level than mm -hmm. the laminated maple. So I said, I wanted to make an arch top, a relatively affordable arch top for regular gigging, touring musician. They don't have to worry about it cracking. It doesn't move. The top doesn't swell in the summer and, and sink in in the winter. It's very stable. And that was my first model and Jim embraced it immediately, and that was the only guitar he played from 2003 until he passed away. So he passed away. on, yeah. And the one next to it is the Jimmy Bruno model. Oh. The one next to that is the new Frank Vignola model. Mm. The one to the left of that is my SS15. It's the same guitar as the Vignola, but with one pickup. Oh. And the one in front of it is my semi-hollow. Mm -hmm. And I never set out to make another 335. Yeah. I didn't need another one of those. Sure. What I wanted was a guitar that from the neck pickup could still sound like a jazz guitar, but mm -hmm. function in like a 15-piece band volume right. level without any feedback yeah, issue. So I designed this very lightweight center block made out of spruce, not maple. I remove wood nice. where I don't need it, yeah. and so it's very light, and so this is the center block of the uh, semi-hollow. Nice. I like how there's a continuity between Yeah, so it has a second pickup, Tunamatic, it'll do great for blues and blues rock and rock and roll and everything, but it, it still gets a good jazz guitar sound. All right, so in this next and almost final installment, we speak about a few additional late great Sadowski users, such as John Abercrombie, Walter Becker, of course, and the late great Vic Juris, who was the instructor to many. And in that way, he was like the Joe Satriani of the East Coast. Not that they sounded anything alike, but Vic was a loyal Sadowski user and a friend. And uh, while we're talking about Vic, the climate control system comes on. I'm not sure if that's the heat or the humidifier or both, but it becomes noisy just as we're speaking about Vic. So if he's not somewhere making that happen, I'm sure he would get a kick out of it. Now, Vic, you know, we have mutual friend Vic Juris. I'm going to yes. do a tribute podcast. To Absolutely. Kate and I are going back and forth. Oh, trying okay. To schedule I just saw a great review of the new album yes. in, in uh, Jazz Times. Yeah, the new album's looking yeah. great. I haven't heard it I have yet. to download it. Yeah. That was Vic's guitar, kind of along the well, lines. Vic had four of my guitars. Uh, he had a semi hollow, he had an SS15, uh, he had a Jim Hall. And he had a, 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 a Tele style guitar in there. Oh, okay. And that was a special one? The Tele yeah, style? Yeah. So uh, I love Vic to death. Yeah. It was so sad when so he sad. passed on. And 
<clears throat> Abercrombie was one of my guys. Uh, mm. I have an, a memoriam section on my artist page, and oh, it kills me how many people Too are many on guys. it. Yeah. Yeah. What did Abercrombie play? He had several of my guitars. His main guitar was a Tele with a Tele style with a humbucker in the neck, mm-hmm. and then he lost that one in a big fire. And then I made him another one, and that one had a Polonia body, which is extremely lightweight. And it makes a warm guitar, it doesn't make a great bass, and he loved that guitar. So that was the lit. And he had a semi hollow as well. Yeah. I know Walter Becker had right. one of your guitars. He had about 20 of my guitars. Yeah. Walter was. Um, he was a junkie uh, yeah. when it came to instruments. And I know he had hundreds yeah. of pieces of gear. It was just mind-boggling. And he apparently his wife didn't know about it. He, I don't know. She talking about wife number one or wife number two? Oh, the one that oversaw the auction. Delia. Yeah. Yeah. And he had multiple lockers. Yeah. Full and of I'm stuff. sure he had a ton of stuff still in uh, Hawaii too. Yeah. You know. But great stuff. I yeah, I noticed there was a bun- bunch of yours. Yeah. Were those solid bodies that he played? As, yeah, yeah. He had one of my little art shops. I think maybe the SS15, oh, yeah. but almost everything were. And we did a signature model together yeah. that had uh, three P90s in mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it was wonderful, and, yeah. I, and I miss him. Yeah. Was that more like a Strats shape? Yeah, the signature exactly. Model? But he had a couple of yeah. tellies, too, for me. Can I play one then? Of course. Yeah. Which one you want to try? Maybe I'll go down the line. You want to start with the Jim I'll start with the Jim talking about that sense that the guitar just seems to answer you through the neck and the body. I'm calling it a bounce. Roger's calling it a response. You say response. I say bounce. <laughs> I concede response is a better sounding word. I'm going to be using that from now on. So here's a little bit of the nylon string guitar built by Roger that we were discussing earlier. <laughs> you missed the conversation that took place underneath the playing, Roger had commented that it's a very unique guitar, and I'd responded that I can't believe how easy it is to move around. It's true. Now, here's one that I forget the name of, but it's a little more Telecaster in style. (laughs) ¶¶ 
And this one's a little bit like the Jim Hall guitar, but smaller and thinner. would fit easier in an overhead bin on a plane. I think this came up earlier, talking about a mini arch top. It's called the Short Scale 15. great that one is special it's got a sound in league with a full-size arch top but a size more comparable to a solid body and a weight that's even lighter hmm it also plays to quote an old snl sketch like butter well i was a bit relieved to find out this is one of the few models roger does not have in stock at the moment he needs to build more which will probably take place sometime later in 2023 And the reason it's a relief is that I already acquired several new instruments in 2022, and it feels a little bit too soon to be adding to the collection. However, it's going to happen at some point. And when the time is right, I will put it to good use. Here's a final thought from Roger. I would be honest, I'd say today, uh, 70% of my business is basses. Yeah. But I'll never stop making guitars. And if I, I started out in 72 making flat tops. Uh And if I ever get an opportunity to step back in my senior years, I want to go back and build flat tops. Okay. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but I am greatly looking forward to the launch of the Sadowski flat top. Roger going back to his roots whenever he decides to do it. And what a pleasure to do this episode. Huge thanks to Roger and Robin and the entire staff of Sadowski Guitars for being so welcoming and making this happen. What a perfect counterpart to the Les Paul episodes, which focused on a much earlier era of guitar building and innovation. And of course, this episode would not be what it is without the participation and presence of Tanya O'Callaghan, who really helped get the ball rolling and just helped make it so much fun. And let's not forget Nathan Peck, who is playing in the background right now on his Sadowski bass. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy. Editing and mixing by Justin Thomas. Music by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Unless otherwise indicated and obviously used for reference, right here, joined by Nathan Peck and Matt Zabrowski. Artwork by Mark Doubt. Be sure to visit Sadowski Guitars online. You can see all the models in detail, get to know all the staff through their profiles, and it's just Sadowski.com, Sadowski with a Y. On Instagram, it's at Sadowski Guitars, and Roger's Instagram is Dr.Fretz. Tanya's is Tanya Callahan underscore official, and Nathan's is Nathan Peck Bass. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Patreon subscribers. And if you're not following the show, please do so. We've got a lot of cool episodes in the works. Take care and be safe. What sets my Sadowski bass apart from other basses? Three things that come to mind are tone, feel, and weight. The tone is just amazing. You know, you don't have to go crazy with highs or lows or any EQ. In fact, I never add or take away any EQ. I run everything flat in every room and it just sounds fantastic. I mean, I could obviously ramble on for ages about a lot of the obvious things like the quality of the woods Roger uses and his incredible preamps and the way that Sadowski's cut through the mix so incredibly. 
um, be it studio or live. The feel is amazing. Um, it's a feeling of unity. The feeling that the whole instrument resonates as one piece, every note having the same potential. I think as someone who is a majority live touring um, bass player, what stands out the most is how lightweight they are. It's just an absolute game changer to have an instrument of such high quality sound wise that averages like nine pounds. The physical difference that that makes for a musician who's running around stage with a bass hanging around their neck is absolutely incredible and unmatched. Osiris. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.